Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, when I used to live in Chilliwack, B.C., there was a Christian man who had a farm right next to the main highway, Highway 1. If you've been to the Fraser Valley, you know what highway I'm talking about. It's the only highway that runs really through there. And on his farm, right by that highway, he had a big sign, like one of those giant billboards that you sometimes see as you're driving along. And on that sign, there were four words printed really big so that anybody driving by, just you couldn't miss it. And these were the, the four words. Prepare to meet God. These words come from a, a verse in the Old Testament, Amos 4, verse 12. And in the context of that passage, if you're interested, you can look it up later to see for yourself. But in its context, God is speaking to a stubborn, he's speaking these words through Amos to a stubborn and an unrepentant people. And in a, in a certain sense, it's a call to repentance. But, but it's also, when he says, prepare to meet thy God, it's also a warning. If you do not repent, he's coming, he's saying, he's coming in judgment. He's coming in his holy and his righteous wrath. He's warning them of that, to punish them, to punish their disobedience and their wickedness and their stubborn refusal to repent. And congregation, that is what we all deserve by nature. Because we're all sinners. We've all been disobedient. We've all been rebellious against God. We all deserve to have to meet God in His wrath, in His judgment. To put it another way, we all deserve to suffer hell. We deserve that because of our sins. Now maybe we say we, we, we know that. That's nothing new. We may even agree with that. But how much do we, how much do you, how much do I truly understand what that's like to meet God in His wrath? What is it like to suffer hell? Could be you're here this morning and the thought of meeting God in His wrath and judgment has never crossed your mind. It has never maybe bothered you. Or maybe you're here and, and you have to say there's been times in your life that it has and, and maybe even now it, it is bothering you and maybe, maybe you are here and you have come and deep in your heart you're crying out with the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Maybe, maybe that thought has brought you to cast yourself on Jesus Christ, on the mercy of God in Christ who took the burden of the wrath of God on himself in the place of sinners. And yet, if you look at your life, how little appreciation for Christ there can be at times. How, how little living in obedience to Christ. How little thankfulness to Him. Don't you ever have that, dear believer? And why is that? Isn't it partly because, because we, at least at times, we fail to really understand what it was like for Him to save us? what it was like for him to have to meet, as it were, God, his Father, in his holy and just wrath. What it was like for him to have to drink the cup of God's wrath that we deserved to drink. What it was like for him to have to suffer hell. Well, our passage this morning, Luke 22, verses 39 to 46, and and really especially 42 to 44, it gives us a glimpse of what it's like 
what it is to meet God in his wrath, what it is to suffer hell. It gives us a glimpse uh, of what Christ did for sinners who trust in him, what he really suffered for them. And that glimpse, congregation, as we look at it this morning, it should humble us and it should cause us to trust in him and to love him and to obey him and to worship him. This passage, Luke 22, verses 39 to 46, really sets Christ's suffering in its proper light. It helps us to understand what his suffering is all about, what the the essence of his suffering was. It wasn't just physical. The essence of his suffering congregation was his bearing the wrath of God. You see, Christ is here on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is here about to enter into intense suffering, a suffering that he refers to as a cup. He calls it a cup. And that cup, if you look at Old Testament references to the cup, is clearly the cup of the wrath of God. To put it another way, it's hell. Because that's what hell is. It's the drinking in of the righteous and holy wrath of God. And what Jesus is doing here on the Mount of Olives is preparing to drink that cup. Preparing to meet God, not in His love, but in His wrath. Preparing to suffer hell. It's a scene, congregation, that demands our greatest reverence, our greatest awe, our greatest attention. So our theme with God's help is Jesus prepares to suffer hell and we'll consider firstly the plea that he makes, secondly the submission he shows, and thirdly the answer he receives. So in the first place, let's listen. Let's listen to the plea he makes. In verses 41 and 42, we read these words. And he, that's, that's Jesus, was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. What is Christ's plea here? It's this, Father, if thou be willing, remove, remove this cup from me. What a plea. Notice a couple of things about, about this plea. First of all, it's a prayerful plea. Prayer is really the whole theme of this, this passage. You, you see that as you, as you look at the verses 39 to 46. In, in the beginning, in verse 40, when Jesus and his disciples first come to the Mount of Olives, and then again at the end in verse 46, Jesus commands his disciples to pray that they might not enter into temptation. And then in between those two commands, in between those bookends, as it were, we read in verses twice in verses 41 and 44 that Jesus himself was praying. It's all about prayer. And there's a lesson for us in that congregation. Jesus here is about to suffer, unimaginable suffering. And, but he knows his disciples are about to, to suffer too because he's going to leave them. And that, that suffering will be different than his, but they will suffer. And in his love and his concern for them, he wants them to be ready, so he tells them to pray. You see, the way to prepare for suffering, congregation, is to pray. To pray not necessarily that we might be necessarily spared from suffering, but that we might not enter into temptation. How often do we pray that? Really, truly. 
Too often, perhaps, we're like the disciples, aren't we? They failed to pray that. They failed to pray at all. We read at the end of the passage in verse 45 that Jesus finds them sleeping from sorrow. But the Lord Jesus here, this is what I want to focus on, the Lord Jesus here doesn't sleep. Oh, he was, he was full of sorrow. You read that in the other Gospels. Sorrowful even unto death. But he doesn't sleep. He prays. He knows he is about to enter his greatest time of suffering. He is about to suffer hell, but he doesn't run away. He doesn't plead with his disciples to help him. He doesn't plead with them to hide him. He doesn't tell them, we need to leave here because this is a place where we always come to. And Judas, he knows that and, and he's going to come. And he, he's, he doesn't do that. He is about to suffer hell. And so what does he do? He withdraws a stone's throw from his disciples. He falls on his knees and he prays earnestly to his father. Oh, how he loves and honors his father. His plea is a prayerful plea. But it's also an anguished plea. You, you sense something of the anguish in Luke's note that he knelt down. You know, he wasn't kneeling down. It's good to kneel in prayer, right? But he, Jesus doesn't kneel down on a, a nice soft carpet. He doesn't kneel down on a pillow. He kneels down in the dirt of the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew and Mark add that he also fell on his face. It points to his anguish. But we hear his anguish most of all in the plea itself. What is that plea? What was the Lord Jesus asking his father to do? Remove this cup from me. Not, Father, give me strength to drink this cup. Not, Father, remove, or not, not Father, let me drink only some of it. But Father, remove, remove this cup from me. Take it away. Why? Why was the Lord Jesus in such anguish and distress about this cup? Why? Do you know? It's because of what this cup was. It wasn't just a cup of suffering in general. Jesus had suffered lots in, all, in, in his life. He wasn't afraid of suffering per se. No, the cup, beloved, the cup was the cup not of suffering in general. It was the cup of God's wrath. I mentioned, I mentioned the Old Testament references to the cup and just let me mention one of them to, to show this to you. Psalm 75, verse 8. Listen to what it says. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup and the wine is red. It is full of mixture and he pours out of the same but or surely the dregs thereof all the wicked of the earth shall wring them out and drink them. There's a cup in the hand of the Lord, a cup that the wicked will drink. And elsewhere in the Old Testament, you can look up references in Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's specifically called the cup of fury, the cup of wrath. That's the cup Jesus is speaking about here, the cup of God's holy wrath against sin. That's the cup that he is facing, that he is about to drink. Because why? Because he is bearing the sins, the iniquities of his people. And Jesus dreads that cup. He dreads that cup. He dreads the thought of drinking it. He shrinks in horror from it. And his, his horror, as Calvin puts it, 
was because he, as our sin-bearer, had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God and the judge himself armed with inconceivable, righteous vengeance. Congregation, it is impossible to fully appreciate, to fully appreciate what Jesus is pleading here. But we must hear it. We must listen to him crying out in his anguish, remove this cup from me. You see, it's the cry not of a mere man. It's the cry of the God-man, the one who is almighty. It's the cry of God, the Son, incarnate in flesh. Do you hear him? It's him crying out in his anguish, remove this cup from me. What does that tell us? It tells us, doesn't it, how terrible, how awful the holy wrath of God must be. It tells us how utterly horrifying hell must be. Do you hear it? Look at the words. Look at the text. Remove this cup from me. Listen to the incarnate Son of God pleading with His Father. Behold Him preparing to meet God in His wrath. He trembles. He dreads. He cringes at the thought of suffering hell. And how can we just shrug our shoulders at it? How can any of you here who are unconverted this morning not want to be saved? How can you just go on in life unconcerned? At any moment, God could bring you to his judgment seat. How can you listen to the almighty Son of God as a perfectly righteous man pleading with his Father on the Mount of Olives to remove the cup of his wrath from him? How can you hear that? How can you hear his anguished plea and still refuse to cry out, what must I do to be saved? Listen, congregation, listen to the anguished plea of the Son of God on his knees. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. How that plea, congregation, should humble us, all of us before God. It teaches us, doesn't it? It teaches us the offensiveness and the awful wickedness of our sin. How it should make us hate sin. How it should make us flee from sin. How it should make us prayerful, as he called his disciples to be, that we not do not enter into temptation. But maybe you say, how could Jesus have prayed this? Doesn't this plea, doesn't his flinching at the cup of God's wrath mean that he wasn't perfect? No, it doesn't mean that. His plea, plea, beloved, was not a sinful plea. It was a holy plea. You see, as one commentator put it, he said this, if you understand the contents of the cup, then the desire to avoid it is part of his perfection. The content of the cup is what? It's the wrath of God. And Jesus, shrinking back from that cup, reveals not his imperfection. It reveals his godliness, his holiness. Because godly people, holy people, don't want God's wrath. 
They want his love. You think of it this way. Children, imagine, imagine your dad was angry with you for some reason. He got upset with you. You disobeyed him. Maybe you looked at his computer when he, or his phone when he told you not to. Now, would it be a good sign if you just didn't care that he was angry, that he was upset? It wouldn't be a good sign, would it? It would be a bad sign. If, if you love your dad, you'll care that he's upset with you. You'll care when he's angry with you. And so in the same way you see, it would be a bad sign if Jesus didn't care about having to drink the cup of God's wrath. His plea, to quote this commentator again, is not a blemish that mars his commitment to the, cro- the work of the cross as if he were not macho enough, to, uh, enough here. Rather, his plea is the jewel of his character. It's the sign of his perfection. It's a holy plea. The real problem, beloved, is not that Jesus prayed, Father, remove this cup from me. The real problem is that we, by nature, don't pray that. By nature, we don't care that God is angry with us. By nature, we don't see our need of salvation. Or if we do, we don't care about it. For us to pray, Lord, save me, We need grace. And thank God, thank God, beloved, that there is grace also for that. We know that because because our text shows us not only the plea Jesus makes, but also, and here, this is now our second point, the submission he shows. He actually bookends his plea with submission. Did you notice that? Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Yes, the Lord Jesus pleads with his Father to remove this cup from him, but he also shows submission. Imagine if he didn't. Imagine if Jesus had simply prayed, Father, remove this cup from me. What would have happened? Matthew tells us that when Jesus rebukes Peter shortly after this for cutting off the high priest's ear, he says to him, To Peter, he says, Do you think I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give more than twelve legions of angels? In other words, the Lord Jesus could have refused to suffer. He could have avoided it. He could have had the cup of God's wrath taken away from him. All he had to do was pray. But if he had, the scriptures would not have been fulfilled. And if he had, if all he had prayed was, Father, remove this cup from me. No one could have escaped hell. And not one of us would pray, Lord, save me. Thank God, congregation, Jesus Christ didn't refuse to suffer hell. Thank God that as he prepared to suffer hell, as he prepared for that, to drink that cup, he didn't just plead that it might be, might be removed from him. He showed his submission. If thou wilt, Father, thy will be done. And, and, and the amazing thing is this, his submission wasn't forced. It was a willing, it was a voluntary submission. Yes, in his humanity, he, he saw what was coming and it filled him with dread. 
the hell, the wrath of God that he was about to suffer filled him with horror, so much so that he pleaded with his father to, to take that cup away. And yet even as he makes that plea, he wraps it as it were in his willing submission. Father, if only if thou be willing. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He freely surrenders himself, you see. He freely surrenders himself to his Father and to his will. Can you understand that? Jesus had said several times during his lifetime that he came to do his Father's will. But here in Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives is the real test, isn't it? Is he really willing to do it? If it means he must drink this cup, if it means he must suffer hell, yes, he is, because he willingly submits to his Father's will for him. Even if it means that he must, in just a few hours, drink the cup of his wrath. And now is the question, why? Why? Why did he willingly submit to the Father's will when he knew that's what it would mean? I know only one explanation. His deep love. His love for his Father and together with his Father, his love for sinful people the sinful people he came to save the reason Jesus willingly submitted to suffer hell is that the dear believer he loves you more than you can possibly imagine he, he willingly submitted to his father's will so that he could save sinners also so, so that, that he could by his Holy Spirit bring them to pray Lord save me and so that he could answer that prayer Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. What willing submission and what sacrificial submission. Christ here emphatically renounces. He denies his own will, speaking here of his human will. He sacrifices it. Not my will, but thine be done. How do we make sense of that, congregation? I don't know. I don't know. It's part of the mystery of him being distinctly God and man in one person. We, we can't fully understand this. We can only see. We can only see his submission and thank him for it and learn from it. How can we not? Dear believer, when you see Christ here, giving up his own will, sacrificing his own will, his own desire, denying himself, humbling himself, even to this point that he is willing to submit to his father and to take and to drink the cup of his father's wrath in your place, in your place. Then what sacrifice for him can really be too much for you to make? Don't you owe your life and your love to him? The submission he shows is a willing submission. It's a sacrificial submission. And it's also a total submission. The Lord Jesus doesn't hold anything back. He gives himself up completely. Let not my will be done. Not a single shred of it. Lord, 
Father, but thine and thine alone. Total submission. Total submission. Even though he shuddered at that cup, even though he recoiled from that cup that awaited him. How can we not stand in awe of him? The plea he makes, beloved, reveals the horror of hell. And the submission he shows reveals the love of the Savior. But the answer he receives brings both of these things together. You see, in the answer he receives, and and this is now our third point, in the answer he receives, the horror of hell and the love of the Savior come together. We look at that, we see that in, in, in verses 43 and, and 44. Look at those verses with me there. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So what is the answer Jesus receives? Children, do you know what the answer Jesus received when he prayed in the garden? An angel, right? That was the answer. It was an angel. As Jesus is kneeling in the dirt in the garden of Gethsemane and crying out, pleading with his father to remove the cup of his wrath from him. And at the same time as he's kneeling there, submitting, showing his submission, denying his own will and submission to the fathers, an angel appears to him from heaven. And what does the angel do? Does the angel do what they did when they came for Elijah? Take him up in a fiery chariot and rescue him, take him to heaven? That's not what happens, is it? The angel appeared to Jesus and strengthens him. Think about that. An angel strengthening the Son of God? What an answer! Doesn't it show us Doesn't it show us how terrible the cup of God's wrath against sin must be? That it made Jesus, and there's mystery here that we cannot fully comprehend, but it made Jesus, as he prepared to drink it, so weak in his human nature that his Father sent an angel to strengthen him. There's so much we cannot understand here. But we can learn this. The wrath of God on sin must be terrible. Hell must be awful. Oh, that we would all be convinced of this, every single one of us. That God would impress this scene here in the garden upon your and my heart so that we turn from sin, so that we hate sin, so that we become disgusted with sin and detest sin, and so that we run to Jesus Christ for salvation and live, live to be as holy in this life as we possibly can. Oh, what an answer. Not just because it reminds us again of how awful hell is, but also because of what that answer ultimately means. What does it mean? What is God saying by sending an angel to strengthen Jesus? What is he answering? What is he saying his answer is to his son's plea? No. No. You understand that? No, my son. 
I'm not going to remove this cup from you. I'm not willing to do that. My will is that you drink it. My will is for you to suffer hell. He sent an angel not not so much to comfort Jesus, although perhaps there was comfort involved to some extent, but that's not what the text says. The text says he sent an angel to strengthen him because he was so weak. To keep him from dying that very moment. To keep him from dying before the cross. To keep him from dying before the cup. To keep him from dying before suffering hell. What an answer. God's answer to his son's plea by sending an angel to strengthen him was no. So that his answer to your plea could be yes. He said no to his perfectly righteous son's plea to remove the cup of his wrath so that he could remove that cup of wrath from people who, unlike his son, really deserve it so that he could save from hell everyone who cries out to him, hoping in, depending on Christ alone for mercy. Oh, congregation, do you see? Do you see what a gospel answer this is? But oh, let us never forget. Let us never, ever forget the impact God's answer had on the Savior. Verse 44. There he is in the dirt, in agony as he anticipates the cup, as he anticipates hell. There he is, praying continually, praying fervently. There he is in an agony so intense as he prepares to suffer hell that his sweat becomes like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Let us never forget the impact God's answer had on Christ. But let it teach us two things. Let it teach us, first of all, never to think lightly of sin. We're so prone to do that, congregation. I'm as prone as you are. The second thing is this. Let it teach us never to think lightly of the love of Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning and you are not trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, I plead with you on his behalf, in his name, to repent, to be converted, even today, to turn to him for salvation. Don't put it off. Don't make excuses. Don't say hell isn't real or that a loving God would never send you to hell. God is a loving God, but he is also a holy and a just God, so just, so holy, that in order to save hell-deserving sinners, in order to remove his cup of wrath from them, he gave it to his only begotten son. And he now calls sinners everywhere because his son drank it. He calls them everywhere to come to him in faith to be saved and promises to meet them. He promises to meet them. Yes, not in his wrath, but in his love. Well, then won't you come? Won't you believe? 
Don't fool yourself that it, that it will all be okay in the end. It won't be. If you refuse to repent and believe Jesus, it, and believe in Jesus, it won't be okay for you. That's what Jesus preparing to suffer hell in this passage is telling us. It won't be okay. It won't. But it will be okay. Yes, it'll be more than okay for all who do look to Jesus because he, in his unfathomable, uh, unfathomable in- incomprehensible love, a love that passes knowledge, submitted to his Father for them. He submitted to drinking the cup of God's wrath every last drop. He submitted to suffering hell. And my dear fellow believers, fellow disciples, let our Savior, what he does here in our text, what he did in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives that night, let it shake us awake and we would see, and we would see what he has done for us. What caused him such agony? It was his father's wrath on him. For what? For what? For our sin. That should make us hate sin. That should make us be devoted to Christ. That should make us rise and pray that we might not enter into temptation or not. I began the sermon by telling you about that sign by the highway. Prepare to meet God. That's, congregation, that's what Jesus was doing on the Mount of Olives on the night before his crucifixion. And he did it. He did it. He met God in his wrath so that we could meet him in his abounding love. Then let us humbly trust and serve and love our Savior. Let us love, yes, the triune God of our salvation. Amen.